0: Welcome to Patricia Raskin's Positive Living, the program that brings you practical and inspiring principles for living more authentic, engaging, and passionate lives. Created by Patricia Raskin, a catalyst for positive change. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of the host, guests, and callers. And now, here's your host, Patricia Raskin. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome. Welcome to Patricia Raskin Positive Living. We're here on Voice America, America's Voice. Um... I have a very special show for you today, and uh, I'm excited about this topic. I think it's a very important topic that we always don't talk about or often don't discuss openly. My guest is Debbie Irving, and she is a racial justice educator and writer. She works with many white people to transform confusion into curiosity and anxiety into action. And her book is Waking Up White and Finding Myself in the Story of Race as her husband Bruce likes to say it couldn't have happened to a whiter person debbie lives in cambridge and she is really um she's really committed to sharing with people uh, what what waking up white is and how we can be more tolerant and have more of a a position of um racial justice and social justice that's what debbie does welcome debbie Thank you so much. Good. I hope that I explained that correctly. But I really think that's what you're trying to do is to show a more open point of view for people to embrace. Yeah. No, that was a great introduction. Um, and that is, that is my passion and the transforming bit from, uh, you know, towards curiosity. And uh, it's a very compassionate way. I yeah. Work. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting because I have a daughter in New York City and her name is Laura. And she will listen to this interview and she's doing similar work. And I've heard so much of this. She's so passionate about really making the world a better place by bringing people together of all different races and kinds, and particularly um, the black race and the African-American race. I think that's a passion for many people. And, you know, it's interesting because that's come up so much in recent films with Dango Unchained, The Butler, 12 Years as a Slave, all really in 2013. All of these films are bringing this to the forefront, Yes and you know and I think part of what's happening is there's certainly more awareness of the level of discrimination that's a part of our country's history. Um, and there's also more opportunity for actors and directors and uh, people of color. And so some of these stories are getting out there. What concerns me and um, is that I don't think that there's been the same level of work, in the white community, and so mm-hmm. no matter how hard people of color try to portray the level of discrimination and what that has done materially and psychically, I and mean, even in terms of physical health to, to populations of color through history, even though uh, they, they can explain that all they want, if white people aren't given sort of the, some history and some ways of thinking about the issue to help change the way they think about it, It's really easy, and I say this because this is where I used to come from. Yeah, that was my question, is how did you get involved in this? Because obviously you are white, and, you know, where did the passion come from? I was raised in an almost exclusively white suburb outside of Boston, um, and and I was born in the 1960s, and this was during the 1960s, and upper middle class life. And, and and all the way through college, I went to Kenyon College in Ohio. So really, the first 21 years of my life, I was. Uh, and the other piece of this is, I had a big extended family. So not only was I with people like me, I was actually with people related to me a lot of the time, and so it was a very monocultural life. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was white and it was upper middle class, and you know every culture has its beliefs and values, and I. I bought into a lot of beliefs and values uh, without knowing the full history of how America um, and its housing footprint had been constructed. So when I, I ended up getting out of college, I moved to Boston, and I ended up working for a nonprofit organization, and one of my charges was to bring together the disparate neighborhoods in Boston. Mm-hmm. And I was, it was very easy for me to raise money to do this because I had all these phenomenal connections from Winchester and from my family you know, who ran foundations and were senior in senior positions in corporations. And yet, for the life of me, I couldn't explain why the housing uh, footprint in Boston was the way it was. You know, I'd walk across the street, I'd look over my shoulder, and I'd see beautiful homes full of white people, and I'd cross the street, and it would start to deteriorate. And uh, deteriorating, it was always full of black and brown people. Um, and in this job I spent a lot of time in schools and the same thing. I couldn't believe the disparity in schools. So I started to get very agitated and I started to want to help people who I had been taught to see as less than. Um, I'm not sure I could have articulated that. In fact, I'm sure I couldn't have articulated that at the time when I was in my twenties. I had been taught to see, uh, black people. Uh, I now use the term black and brown because we we're becoming so much more mixed, but at that point I would have said mm-hmm. black people. I saw their disadvantage. I never imagined it could be connected to my advantage. And so I wanted to help. I was always in a position of wanting to save and help. And um, and my efforts weren't always welcome. And I could no one said that, but, you know, you can feel that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my next job, that went on for about 10 years. My next job was as a public school teacher in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where uh, Cambridge is an urban area. And school by school, classroom by classroom, the rooms are very diverse in terms of socioeconomics, mm-hmm. in terms of ethnicity, race. Why, why, Let me ask you, Debbie, why do you think there's such an issue? Is it because the customs are different? The culture is different? Is it more than just the color? Oh, so much more. And so if I if we go back to the housing footprint, so what I was just going to, uh, let me just finish the thought about school, is that even with those diverse, Kids and families in the school, the way they achieved and the level at which they participated in the school was completely different. The white kids were overachieving and the white families were the ones that were involved. And one way to read that would be, hmm, black parents don't care as much, Hmm. black kids aren't aren't as smart, you know, all these things, which would fit the narrative that i had been taught. In fact, what I've learned is that there's this huge um, pattern of white Dominance. And so, if you right. go back to my town, Winchester... And wait a minute, and they may not, the blacks may not have had the opportunities. May not have had opportunities. What's surprising is how benign some of the behaviors and um, policies can be in the minds of white people that end up really hurting mm. people of color. I'll give you a school basis. Please, Your daughter is Please school. give an, an example. A, Here's a school-based example. As a white parent, because uh, my kids also went to the Cambridge Public Schools, I always would go to the classroom teacher the day before school started, and I would say, you know what? I'd love to be your room parent. And I would do that uh, not because I was trying to get a leadership position. I saw myself as being helpful. I thought, you know, I could go run some errands for this teacher. I can organize whatever events there are. It never once occurred to me that I might be taking a spot that someone else might want. Mm-hmm. Um, and, in fact, I now know that were I a classroom teacher, I would say to someone like me, you know what, that's great. I'm going to put your name on the list. I really want a chance to talk to all the parents. And um, and I would take a look at the composition of my class, and, and I would see who would be. A, I would probably get more than one room parent, um, and maybe even get one of, you know, representing. So I got a little representation. Mm-hmm. Another another thing that, that I did was every spring, I would tell the principal, I would go knock on his door and we'd have a friendly little chat, and I'd say, "You know I'd really like it next year if um, Emily can be in this class and Jane can be in this class and you know we really like that teacher, and oh don't, it would be really great if she wasn't with this kid and she was with this kid. And you know, the principal would would take notes and what I found out is that black parents, had no idea that that was even a possibility. Yeah. Yep, that's what I'm saying. That's what I meant when I said opportunity. They just, it's right. almost like they began to accept the way it was without realizing there was another way. Exactly. And you opened um, the door to another way by saying, let's include. Let's open this up and let's include them. Yes, and including is such a strange social dynamic because a lot of times what being inclusive can mean is for white people to just step back. hmm and listen, and not step up and, you know, be, because I was taught to be helpful, to step into positions of leadership, and, and just yes. the opposite is what's really needed to step back. It, it's yeah, one of the thing things you write about is unintentional racism. Would you consider what you just said, unintentional racism? Absolutely, yeah. I would. Classic examples. And it doesn't just happen in schools. It happens in hospitals and banks and, uh, you know, realtors. And there's no, there's no sector of our society that doesn't um, get touched by it. I have another great example in um, the intersection of commerce and transportation. So in Buffalo, New York, back in the 1990s, a 17-year-old black girl was run over by a truck as she was trying to get to her job, mm. which was in a mall. And Buffalo, New York, I learned through studying this particular incident, is very divided in terms of black and white. And there's literally one street, one large throughway that goes uh, across the city that divides. The white people live on one side and black on the other. And just as I described in when I was talking earlier about the housing footprint, you know, the white homes are more valuable and they look better. And, you know, it's the old story. It's in every city in America. So Buffalo decided to build a new mall. And the mall was in the white section of town. And now, when I think of a mall, the first thing I think of is what stores are going to be there. Uh, what I wouldn't have thought about so much is if that's a really important job opportunity, that's a place of jobs. So right. this black girl, Cynthia, really wanted a job. There wasn't much commerce happening. I mean, these are deserts. These neighborhoods where black and brown people have been left behind in America mm-hmm. through a series of housing um, policies. But, so <laughs> Cynthia wanted a job. So for her to get to that mall, it took her an hour and a half on three different buses to get to the mall. Because? um, What was that? Why? Because the black part of town was so far away from the white part of town. And when they were building the mall, they purposefully changed the busing route so that it would would discourage people from the black side of town from coming over there Mm -hmm. to work or shop. So this was intentional, but why? You know, it's not as if the, the the people building the mall. So those were developers, people in commerce. It's not as if they sat down and said, "How can we, you know, mess up the lives of mm-hmm. and and ruin the lives, further marginalize these people?" It was about how can we protect our assets. Yes. How can we How can we get the best shops in here? You know, shop owners regularly ask, "Who do you want? Who are your demographics?" Um, and there apparently had been conversations. Mm-hmm. where the mall developers have said, we don't, want, we don't want the black folks. This is going to be an awful white folks. And so this is just one example of this girl trying to get, trying to better her life, being willing in Buffalo, New York, where it's, you know, 10 degrees. No, no. Okay, Debbie, we're now in 2013. We've had three major movies, one won an Oscar, <laughs> 12 mm-hmm. Years a Slave. We have a black president. Is it changing? It's absolutely changing. And unfortunately, I can't, say it's, it's not a linear getting better um, situation because um, white people continue to see black people not achieving at the same level as white people. On average, yes, we have a black president, but if you look at the bigger numbers, it's the same story is told, and this it's, uh, lack of opportunity leads to lack of achievement, and that gets misread. Um, and And so I think I, not I think I know what continues to happen is that in white people's minds there's this sense of like I don't want to be racist I don't want to think less of you know these people but they really aren't performing at the same level you know they are still living in those neighborhoods and um, you know, their grammar might not be perfect or whatever. So let's look at this you know elephant in the room and let's look at uh, the situation. What can we do? What are the positive steps that you propose and that you've seen? I know it's going to take time. I know it's a progression, but what works? Uh, what works for white people, because every, every uh, racial group in America has its own baggage from all that's happened in this country. So I'm going to speak specifically for white people, uh, to white people. So what white people do need to do is, first of all, uh, believe that there's an issue, there's a lot of people who don't believe it. Believe that there's a very big problem still brewing. Um, two, learn your history. I, I was shocked. I was a history major in college. I couldn't believe the history I hadn't learned. I've got all kinds of information on my website about this. Um, and then in terms of interacting with people of color, be mindful that when a person of color starts to share an experience they've had, they've gotten to a point where they're trusting in a way that is um, extraordinary. For a person of color to tell you uh, an experience that's happened to them that's racialized, mm-hmm. That the reason we don't hear these stories is because uh, very few people of color trust white people in general enough to expose their vulnerability. I mean, if you've already been hurt, it's hard to share that hurt, mm-hmm. only to have someone say, oh, they didn't mean it that way, or, oh, that mm-hmm. couldn't be that bad. Um so to really, if somebody, a person of color in your life reaches out to tell you something, believe it. Listen to it and believe it. Especially if you are a person in a workplace, if they're telling you a situation that's going on in the workplace, it's a chance to really listen to that person and help, help figure out how to maybe the two of you empower yourselves together to, to try to solve the problem. Can you give me an example of where you did this for someone and you saw a difference? Now, I know you talked about doing this in terms of reaching out to parents when you oh, were I teaching? So, I have so many examples of how I didn't do it. I now can go back in my life and see times when people did reach out and I've kind of poo poohed them. Hmm. Um, I think that probably the most powerful example I have is a, uh, a black woman from Boulder, Colorado, went on the radio to read a poem of hers called A Poem for My White Friends. And it was the first public reading of it that she'd ever done. And this is a huge step for a black person to come out. And it's, the, the poem lifts in a beautiful way all the things that she hasn't said over the years to this white friend wow. of hers and why she couldn't say them. And um, it's just a gorgeous poem. I heard it, and, I, and I, got, I got in touch with the radio station, and I said, please, can I be in touch with this Norma person? And Norma and I developed a very deep friendship quickly Mm-hmm. by me saying, I want to support your poem. You know, I'm putting out this book. Mine is a raw, truth-telling book. Your poem is a raw, truth-telling book. And so it's been a way for us to validate one another. Isn't that, um, is it in your book? Uh, it's not in my book. I'm putting it up on my website today um, because she just made a video, a YouTube video, so people can now see it instead of just read it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, a lot of people who read my book say, oh, I really want more stories of people of color. Yeah. You know, I want to tell you, probably I've interviewed thousands of people over the years. I think my most powerful interview was with Maya Angelou. Mm, and the poems that, that. that she read and the things that she said, particularly her newest book about uh, her grandmother and her early life, it was very, very powerful. And I think, as you said, it's we need to tell more stories I'm happy that this is happening in the media, in the films, and I think that 12 Years a Slave was a very important movie, and I will tell you that I almost didn't see it because I was, very, I was worried about the violence, Absolutely. and yet whatever violence was there I thought was very integral to the story and very important and done in a way that, that you really saw how important it was, and I thought yeah. it was um, a very powerful film. Yeah, it wasn't gratuitous. I mean, that's, that's, uh, for sure. And I think, uh, a couple ways, I th- I've written actually a blog about that film that's on my website. It's, um, it's 12 Years a Slave. I can't remember the exact title, but 12 Years a Slave is in the title so people could find it easily. And it's about mm-hmm. how do we deal with that white people saying, oh, because I did hear people say, I don't, I can't see it. It's too upsetting. And it took mm-hmm. my husband Bruce saying to me, Debbie, when your friends tell you it's too upsetting, you need to encourage them to go. They can't handle three hours of upsetting, given what's happened in our history and given what your job is. You need to push them. Right. Um, and right. the, and, uh, what and you know what's interesting? I went with a friend of mine who's black, purposely, because she was nervous too. And we yeah. made a conscious decision that we would go together, which we did, and it was, it was so wonderful because we were really able to share and talk about it afterwards in such a meaningful way. Well, there's a perfect example, you know, when you say, what can people do? I think one of the things that for if a white person were to ask a friend of color to go, they would need to be prepared for, for that friend to say yes. no, and then to not take it personally. That's another thing. It's so easy to take things personally um, and think that we're kind of on the level playing field. But I think there's an extra tenderness without, that's not pity. There's an extra level of tenderness that white people need to bring to any relationship with people of color, because what they, I, in my opinion, I, don't, I can't imagine any person of color in this country not suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, and I'm not talking about from 400 years ago. I'm talking about from yesterday, because yeah. there is, you know, these, these things happen every day to every person of color I know, um, and they're still in a level of heightened anxiety, and white people being cognizant of that is, is important. What are you doing now? What are your projects now in terms of furthering this awareness? Uh, well, the book came out in January, so a lot of my time is spent um, promoting the book, being on the radio. I've, I go to conferences that are diversity conferences or race related conferences and do workshops and talks. Um, I'm working with a, organi- getting ready to work with an organization called World Trust, which has a number of online resources and films all about. Up- about uh, this topic, and we're going to work together to do a module around the, the book. So that would be a, a, sort of a, oh, that's wonderful. A, a curriculum to go with the book. Um, mm-hmm. I'm also getting ready to teach. I don't know if you at, uh, read the book, but um, the big the big turning point in my life is when I took a course at Wheelock College. Um, yes, called- I saw that. I was just asked to teach the course, so I'm now going to start teaching at Wheelock, which is... Isn't that um, wonderful? And the name um, of the course was... was, um, Racial and Cultural Identity. Mm -hmm. And I thought when I went to take that course, I was so excited because I thought I was going to learn about other races and other cultures and that I would be able to bring what I learned back into the classroom so I could help those kids. And in the first class, the teacher said, this is going to be one of the hardest things you've ever done because you're going to take a deep look at your own racial identity. And my thought was, well, what am I going to do? Because I didn't even think I had a race, let alone a racial identity. And that was what the course, that was why everything changed for me. was because I stopped looking to other people for answers and I started looking within myself. I want to read a testimonial of your book. From Van Jones, who is the author of Rebuild the Dream, The Green Collar Economy, How One Solution Can Fix Our Two Biggest Problems. He's president of Rebuild the Dream and also co-host of CNN's Crossfire. And here's what he has to say. Deborah Irvings bravely describes her jolting and continuing journey, from white oblivion to white awareness in an honest way that may inspire others to do such transformational work on themselves. She has courage in tracing many cultural and class assumptions that kept her for decades in a fog of racial denial and white dominance. This empathetic book can help white readers to dissipate imprisoning white ignorance that we did not ask for, but, but in our damaged world, ourselves, and actually, that did not. That came from different. That came from Peggy McIntosh, who's the associate director of Wellesley Centers for Women right. and the I National seed Project. Like Jones, yeah, but. yeah. But let me just go back because I think it's fair. Um, with Van Jones, with CNN Crossfire, he says that you open up a rare window on how white Americans are socialized. That you focus on the mechanics of racism operating in just one life, your own, and how that can lead white readers to consider roots of their own perspectives and their role in dismantling these old myths. That readers of color will really find a view through your fascinating and your telling book. So I want you to read those because those are two different ones and I think they're really important to say that um, we really need to build this awareness in a continuing way. Yeah, these are. Um, I mean, I think what's different about my book is um, is just the raw honesty. It's not an academic book. It's it's, it's as if it's just, if this were a book about dieting, I'm the person who lost 500 pounds. Hmm. I'm not. You know, I'm not the doctor. I'm not the cardiologist. I'm not the nutritionist. But uh, well, you know, Van. No, you're uh, the real person that has been through this, and it's been your experience, right? And then and then. I think sometimes people will think, because it's very clear from that cover, and it's very clear if you read my bio, that I am upper middle class, and a lot of people think, oh boy, I, you know, I was working class, and this story will have nothing to do with me, and there, it's true. No two white people's story is exactly alike, and yet there is this common piece of our white history that's so important to understand if we're to really engage in this responsibly, um... And so what I've done is at the end of every chapter, I have a question or exercise, and people can skip over it, or they can choose to, um, one or another will resonate with them. It's a way for people to start to do their own work. And what I find is that when I go to talk to people, a book group or a class or, a, you know, a campus who's read the book, people don't want to talk about my story. They want to talk about their own. And so it is a just, it's a fantastic conversation starter. Hmm. That's uh, really well done. How can people? Whoops, Tricia, I lost. How it. can how can people find a book? Uh, people can get the book anywhere books are sold. It's on uh, Amazon.com, Barnes and Noble.com, at your local bookstore and library. Though you may, it's early enough in its life that you may need to request it. Uh, the ebook exists. Uh, where you know wherever you get ebooks. Um, so it's and I've kept it very affordable. It's nineteen ninety nine. Um, which means Amazon will already discount it for you. Um, so I really am so excited for the book to be out in the world because I, it really took me four years to figure out how to get my message out from yeah. my heart yeah. and my head mm-hmm. into language. And well, let, me, the, <laughs> let me just explain this for people who have just tuned in. Uh, my guest is Debbie Irving, and she's written the new book, Waking Up White, which exposes critical aspects of the white experience white people thirsting for clarity on racial issues and the confidence to engage in conversation about them. Debbie Irving is a white Boston-based racial justice educator. She's written the book that she wishes someone had handed her years ago, a story-based racism 101 for white people. Its narrative memoir formats a mainstream read that gives white readers the basics needed to understand these complex understandings about racism. And, Debbie, I, I really appreciate this. I appreciate you writing it, making people aware. Where are you speaking? Are you speaking anywhere uh, on the Northeast or around the country that we might want to know about? Oh, boy. My next talk is in Winchester, Massachusetts, which is going to be, talk about full circle, it's going to be in the library under the mural, which is the scene, the opening scene in the book. Mm-hmm. And that's on April 27th. Um, and I am speaking. Well, I would. You know what I would do? I would direct people to my website. There's uh, media and events as a section. And if you go to events, you can see where I'm speaking. That's terrific. Well, I, I really appreciate you coming on the show. If people want to contact you, can they write to you? Absolutely. It's Debbie at uh, debbieirving.com. And you can also you go to my. If you go to my. If you can't remember that, just go to my website, and there's a contact uh, slide there. Debbie, what would you like to leave our listeners with today? What's your message of your book in a sentence or two? Racism is the most um, toxic and misunderstood issue in our society. I believe there are millions of white people who would love to engage in um, eradicating racism if they only understood the issue and how to engage in it. And my book is a first step in that direction. Absolutely, because in your book, you talk about things that we don't even realize that we're doing that are racist, just, just we don't even realize them, and that's what yeah. you brought out in the book. And you get to learn about it because you watch me make the mistakes. <laughs> 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 I think that makes it a little easier when you get to watch someone, you get to learn, uh, it's not easy, but you know, it's, I, I, I try to keep the story just about me to model what it looks and feels like so to do this. Well, I really appreciate you coming on the show. And the website is DebbieIrving.com? That's right. And Debbie is with a Y, Irving's with an I. All right, Debbie, D-E-B-B-Y, Irving.com. Debbie, thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you. This is really great, Patricia. Thank you. Hold on for a minute. All right, folks, that wraps up uh, this edition of Patricia Raskin Positive Living right here on Voice America, America's Voice. Tune in every week for this program. And if you'd like to write to me, I'm at Patricia at PatriciaRaskin.com. Until then, stay healthy, stay happy, get the support you need, and know you can make your dreams come true. I'm Patricia Raskin. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Patricia Raskin's Positive Living. Be sure to join Patricia Raskin and another amazing guest next Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have an outstanding week.